Hello, everyone, and welcome to Ladies' Night, the official podcast of U.S. Chess Women. I'm your host, Jennifer Shahadi, and you are listening to the artist Huga of hugamusica.com. And that is a song that certainly captured my heart. Oh, Capablanca. His bishop was small. Thanks to everyone who supports the podcast through shares and reviews and Apple Live. If you want to get more involved in all we do at U.S. Chess to empower girls and women through chess, please consider a tax-deductible donation of any size to our U.S. Chess Women program and reach out to me with any questions. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Ladies' Night. This is Jennifer Shahadi, and today I bring you a very special collaboration with an old friend of mine. He was a high school chess teammate. He's a national master. He is also a great friend of my brother's, of my father's. Everyone loves Ben Johnson. He's the host of the Perpetual Chess Podcast and author of the coming soon book, Perpetual Chess Improvement, Practical Chess Advice from World-Class Players and Dedicated Amateurs. It's coming out on November 1st, 2023. So excited for that book. It's actually the same birthday as a new book by me, Play Like a Champion. So Ben Johnson and I, good friends. And now we also have book twins. Who would have thought it? Um, We are going to discuss the Women's World Chess Championship, and then we're going to catch up a little beyond that. Um, Strap yourself in, enjoy yourself, and hey, perhaps open up the World Chess Championship games on your browser so you can really relive the action. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another Women's World Championship bonus edition of Perpetual Chess. And we have uh, one of my favorite guests and one of my dear friends joining us. More importantly, she's the two-time U.S. Women's Champion, an award-winning podcaster and author of the classic Chess Queens and of the forthcoming Play Like a Champion and eventually Thinking Sideways. She's also a commentator, including for Chess.com, for the final two games of the Women's World Championship match. So the match is fresh in her mind. All of the drama is, and I'm pleased to welcome back to the program, Jennifer Shahadi. Welcome, Jen. Hey, thank you so much, Ben. It's really fun to be here as, you know, this match certainly captured my imagination. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. And I got the feeling, especially in the second half, that a lot of people really got into the match. And I certainly enjoyed it. And of course, uh, people listening probably know, but we should probably report just in case that Ju Wen Jun won in dramatic fashion. She wins 300,000 euros. She's now the four-time champion, joining the likes of Vera Menchik, Nona Gopardashvili, Maya Chaburdinzi, Zi Jun, and Ho Yi Fan as the sixth player to win the title four times or more. Um, so came back one to even the score. And then we had a couple draws. They were all really well played. Um, and then goes down to the last game. And Jen, I know that you at some point thought that we were going to have a playoff. At what point did you start to think, wait a minute, maybe there's not going to be a playoff after all? Oh, that's a really great question. I mean, 
Honestly, me and Jovanka Hauska, who I was doing the commentary with on chess.com and all the producers, sorry, we all were like eh, 80, 90% that we're going to have a playoff tomorrow. I already had my alarm set for the middle of the night and Saturday night because it just seemed like with no rest day between the playoffs and the 12 classical games that it would be like a smart thing. You know, you, you make a slightly quicker draw than usual. You have a little bit of time to prepare for the most important rapid and blitz games of your life. So we all really expected this. But then the opening was so wild. Already we were like, okay, I mean, definitely um, our opinion on the position kept flip-flopping. You know, white's winning, black's better, white's better. So I think once the opening came out, we were pretty clear it wasn't going to be a quick draw. So um, just it was so imbalanced. If, if you guys, if some of the listeners didn't see the game, you know, Black had this huge center and White had a beautiful protected pass pawn, A4, B5, just not your typical draw. Um, the middle game got even more fiery as we saw a very interesting imbalance. One of my favorite imbalances, actually, I love the imbalance of two pieces for a rook and a pawn. I think it's very rich. Um, I have a six-year-old, um, Fabian, who loves chess. And I feel like I'm always trying to explain to him why when you have a knight on g5 and a bishop c4, you don't want to just go knight takes f7 and you know trade off your two minors for a rook and a pawn. So it's something that I find really interesting. One of my favorite victories of my own was against Grandmaster Eugene Perelstein, where I had that imbalance in an endgame and I had the rook. And the rook dominated. So I felt like the whole game had all of these rich lessons to tell us. And um, as we saw, the women were there to fight. Um, well, eventually I got to turn off that alarm for the middle of the night on Saturday. <laughs> yeah, it was quite entertaining. And I will say, I felt like the first, like, I felt like maybe the quality went down a tiny bit in game 12, especially early in the game. I kind of felt like once once it reached the end game, it was clinical um, by the champion. But prior to that, I felt like things were a little sloppy, maybe nerves seeped in early in the game. But yeah, it was so imbalanced that you really did see that they came to play and maybe you wouldn't have a playoff after all, but fun to watch. Oh, it was so wonderful. I mean, I was really looking forward to a playoff. Uh, even though the wake-up call is very difficult. I have to say every time I do um, chess commentary like that, I have great um, appreciation for all the graveyard shift um, workers all over the world because it's really very difficult on the nervous system. I mean, it's not just hard because you have to wake up. I think like psychologically, it's very difficult um, because of like your serotonin levels and light levels. So um, I, I appreciate being able to sympathize, but it, it's really hard, but it's so worth it to watch this type of chess and to call the action with the Ivanka. And in particular, I was looking forward to the playoff. But if you had told me that we would have a positional masterpiece to determine the women's world championship, I'd say, forget the playoff. Let's take the positional masterpiece because this game was, was in my eyes, just like a flawless demonstration by June and June. Yes. Few mistakes. Sure. Maybe in the opening, whatever, whatever, but just the fact that the technical aspect of the game was so incredibly instructive. I think it's really inspirational to a lot of, a lot of kids, a lot of kids of all genders, but of course, girls and women in particular, um, you know, Judah Polgar inspires everyone to be more aggressive, to play attacking openings. And I think yesterday, or whenever this episode is airing, 
Um, that game 12, I think is going to inspire a lot of people to, you know, deepen their understanding of positional chess, that you can win an end game with your opponent barely making any mistakes because you understand the position better. Yeah, the, the yeah, it was fascinating seeing the two knights outplay the rook and the, the I I really admired. I mean, and for listeners who didn't see the game, I'd say it's definitely worth watching a game recap of the decisive game in particular. I think Jen might be doing one on her channel, uh, possibly by the time this comes out. But um, for for a weaker player like me, her patience. So she won the d5 pawn, but she didn't take it right away. She made sure she waited until. Um, she could keep rooks on the board at the point that she took the pawn. And that moment to me was very instructive, as well as the rerouting of the knight in particular, when she played the knight to b1 to get it to c3, to sit on that pawn. Uh, those two moments really stood out and I found quite instructive. Beautifully said. I love the knight b1 maneuver. I mean, it for those of you who didn't see the game, um, she rerouted her knight from b2 to b1 to c3 with a black pawn on c4 and d5. So this is like actually the iconic example of a blockade knight, an outpost knight, because the knight does a beautiful job of preventing the C-pawn from promoting while also aggressively attacking the pawn on D5. And actually, I remember as like a teenager, early 20s, um, reading a Dovoretsky book or perhaps getting uh, a lesson from Gregory Kaidanov and somebody telling me that that position's winning for white when you get the, the knight on C3 with the pawn on C4, when the black pawn's on C4 and you get the white knight on C3. So um, it, it was beautiful to see um, how she executed that. And I know it's a little bit silly to teach a six-year-old that, but I tried to explain it to Fabian. <laughs> <laughs> how did it like, go? Why is that a good move? And, you know, hey, why not, why not try? Sometimes these things stay imprinted in the brain. And I'm glad you mentioned the other moment where um, she played rook to c1 um, in order to protect her knight on c3 and then move her other knight to f4 to capture on d5 to win the pawn on d5 without trading rooks. That was a sensational scheme. And I think it's very logical. Um, sometimes in chess, it's easy to calculate so much that you forget your logic. But what is the logic here? Black had two rooks. White had one rook. It's better to have one of a type of piece because it can do some really important damage, whereas two of a piece can be redundant. So of course she wants to keep the one rock, right? And it's just like this pure logic that seems so obvious. It's like, oh, a beginner can understand that. But you know what? When you're at the board, you know, masters, international masters, grandmasters can easily lose sight of that kind of thing. And so to see Ju Win Jun execute it so perfectly when she was playing for all the marbles, it's, uh, it's epic. Yeah. And, and of course, the mistake that set up that whole sequence, the moving the pawn to E5 and weakening the black chain, that in itself was an instructive moment. And just from that point forward, perfect capitalization, again, by the world champion. And of course, uh, a lot of people weighed in with congratulations. Um, Raphael Latau, who did a great job uh, doing the annotations and all of the write-ups for chess.com, uh, concluded that it was a tense and difficult ma match that was played at a very high level by both players. Anish Giri tweeted, congratulations to Ju Wenjun for retaining her title. What made this match particularly interesting for me to follow, amongst other things, was the high level of preparation, which I think is a good segue to the, what I found super fascinating. Shout out to the, the chess superstar, <laughs> Fabian, here joining us on the podcast. Can he hear us? 
Yeah, yeah, he can hear. Yeah. Okay. Because I always have my ear pods in. So if my kids come, they can't hear. So yeah, Fabian, we're talking about the uh, World Chess Championship, the Women's World Chess Championship, which just concluded. And yeah, so when Begum and I discussed the first half of the match, we speculated a lot about what openings um, would be seen. And because they they played so many openings in the second half, we managed to be right at the same time that we were wrong because we had Carol Kahn's, we had D4 variants, we had a Sicilian. Uh, that was definitely something as highlighted by Anish Giri. Fun to watch the different openings, but also uh, it's impressive that a player like Anish was so struck by the preparation. Yeah. Um, so I felt really excited to see what opening was going to take place each day. I mean, particularly I was following the action um, on chess.com before I hopped in the booth. They, you know, they had Judith Polgar and Alexander Kostinuk. They had um, Danya do a couple rounds and, and Jovanka hosted it all. And what struck me is these duos with Jovanka and Judith, right? Well, first uh, we get uh, a Sicilian by Ji Wen Jun when Judith is right. in the commentary. And I'm like, oh, this is so great. And then the next round, Jovanka literally like jumps out of her chair. She's so excited. <laughs> Oh my God. The next time that Yuan Jun gets black, she's so excited. I've never seen somebody so excited to see our Carol Khan then. <laughs> yeah, she of course wrote the book on the Carol Khan. So <laughs> um, exactly. And for you to, of course, it's the exact opposite. It's like, come on, why didn't you move the pawn two squares? Okay, but that that game was very exciting, actually. That Carol Khan was was not was not exactly a snooze fest. I mean, none of the games were snooze fests in this uh in this uh world championship match. Yeah, and and the Carol Khan, I mean, I I found it interesting because uh, in just in reviewing Ju and Jun's primary repertoire, I hadn't highlighted it as something we were likely to see. But then they asked Lei Tingjie after the game, you know, did you did you expect the Carol Khan? And she said, well, she did play it a couple of weeks ago, so I kind of did. So it was funny that it shows that obviously she's better prepared than I am, for example. Well, Leighton Chase certainly earned a lot of new fans from this. I mean, she had fans um, before, but I mean, I think a lot of her fans become super fans and then people who didn't know her as well. Uh, there was just so many things to like about her. I mean, not just her style of play, but also um, her expressions, like just really showing like kind of the emotions that a, a chess player goes through. And then um, some of the, you know, kind of like witty remarks in the press conferences, like she was just a, a lot of fun. And I can't wait to see her games in the future. Yeah, extremely upbeat. She had a lot of uh, comments that got clipped that were just like, you know, what do I have to worry about? I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but what do I have to worry about in the world? I, you know, I get to play chess. If you if you play chess, you're doing what you love uh, and so on and just always smiling. So I, you know, I had seen enough of, uh, read enough of what she'd said and seen enough clips that I, similar to what you say, I was a fan going in, but I'm definitely even a bigger fan now and uh, hope she can make it to another world championship. I was hoping it makes me slightly disappointed that she's not in the um, women's world cup, which of course is coming shortly. And uh, Ju Wen Jun is playing, which I always feel like the champion should rest and the challenger should get back out there, but that's, that's not how it's currently lined up. No rest for Ju Wen Jun. Yeah. You got your favorite tournament coming up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, our interview will probably come out after a an epic preview that we did. But yeah, I'm excited both for the uh, open and for the women's. It should be uh, fascinating um, to to see all the openings and all the champions in action. But so bringing it back to, to this match. Um, so what else stands out to you, Jen? I mean, 
the opening preparation, as Anish highlighted, I found to be quite impressive. And then it was reported that Wei Yi was also on uh, the champion's team, on Ju Wenjun's team. Um, it's it's impressive to me. And then I saw someone tweet that she had a like a deeper, more serious team, possibly than than Ding Loren did. I mean. Yeah, that is extraordinary. I mean, but it also um, it also kind of goes back to something that I, I wrote about in Chess Queens, that there is a lot of support in China for the top women players. And a lot of the, the entire um, country getting behind, of course, like Jia Jun, who started it all, this chess revolution in China. And uh, up to up till now, I mean, I think it's it's fantastic to see. I mean, um, one thing I think that kind of came to light with this world championship was uh, the idea. I, I saw a tweet from Grandmaster Maurice Ashley about, you know, what about the prize fund in the future? Are we going to see prize funds that are more equitable in the open world championship and the women's world championship? $500,000 euros at stake, nothing to sneeze at. But when you start adding in the taxes, the training team, so much time that you have to spend to prepare this match, you can see how um, it's clearly not just about the money for the players, right? It goes way deeper than that. And um, the world championship really coincided with a big announcement from Norway Chess that they're going to have a super women's tournament alongside Norway Chess, which is going to have exactly the same prize funds for the women as for the Open. So I think this is something we're going to be hearing about a lot more because, you know, you see the the way they work, how seriously they take it, the time, and you question, hey, I mean, maybe these prize funds need to be more equitable. Yeah, um, certainly. I, I, I certainly think that they should be. And it'll be... Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how this progresses, how the Norway tournament is is received and, like, whether... Because I know that, like, I think the top young women player players, unfortunately, seem to move away from chess more often than top young young male players. So we would hope that over the long haul that this would start to change that. Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. I mean, usually the argument is like, well, and I, I write about this in Chess Queens too, the argument is, well, women can play in the open section too. So um, that makes it okay for the prize funds to be like extremely different. And, and honestly, for a lot of years, I thought that that was a reasonable argument. But I think as I've matured, I kind of see the other side of it as well, that at the end of the day, you're also uh, paying people for their time and their entertainment value. Um, it's about like, all the labor that goes into playing this chess and now, like now chess is such big business. It's not just about like looking at someone's rating and so much more goes into it than that. Right. And to like, and to like take these great women players and just like always like put it in that kind of framing um, ends up becoming like really negative, not only for the conversation, but also for their pocketbooks, which is not what we want. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I understand the arguments from both sides as well. Um, but to me, it's just, We've reached this point where what we're doing, to my mind, has not been as effective as it could be, especially through the broad sweep of chess history. I feel like over the past 10 years, um, things are maybe slowly moving in the right direction. But um, changes like this give us an opportunity to gauge the the impact that they can have, and then we can proceed from there. But um, in the meantime, it's obviously a boon to to have opportunities like the, the Norway tournament uh, coming up is a boon to the professionals of the chess world. Um, and obviously 
primarily to the women players, but we look at something like uh, some of the men who are working on their teams and, uh, the, you know, they get opportunities from it as well. And if it grows the visibility of chess overall, that's a win for everyone. Exactly. I totally agree. I mean, more women in chess is definitely just like good for the game, good for everyone. Um, well, you're not going to be surprised to hear me say that. When right. you think about the, the sweep of women in chess and history, I also really want to go back to something you said very early on about how Chu Wenju now joins this elite club of women who've won four or more world championships. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because with a lot of those women, they were just like dominant when it comes to rating over their competitors. Like, of course, Vera Menchik, um, you know, pre-fide ratings, but she was just head, she was just so much better than all of her rivals of the time, right? Um, and then there was also um, Nona Gaffrin, there's really also a pretty big gap, right? And uh, Ho Yifan, of course, Maya Chibberdanizzi. I'm not sure about Chibberdanizzi's. Um, I think there was there were more competitors. And of course, that was a time when the Polgars were coming up as well. And obviously, they didn't play in women's tournaments in the beginning. But certainly in the case of Ho Yifan, Nona Gaffrin-Nashvili, and Baramenchik, you see this like big, big gap, right? And I think that what's interesting is Ju and June winning four times when there's so many people of a pretty similar rating level as her. I mean, that's kind of extraordinary. I mean, it it kind of does go into that question that it's like, this is more than rating, right? There's yeah. something about the match preparation and the match format that she is excelling at. Yeah, and at this point, maybe maybe her experience is sort of like uh, an advantage that compounds over time. And in these tense moments, she's able to to handle her nerves better because it's so hard to get there. And she's guaranteed to be in the match, whereas other people, you know, they have to hope that things break right. And then they may or may not have the experience. Like, I'm sure, uh, Leiting Jay, she's, she's, she'll take a ton away from this match, but it's no guarantee that you get another chance. So, um, yeah, it, it'll be interesting. Uh, so... As we we wrap up this this conversation about the match itself, I while I have you, Jen, we might as well quiz you before you go about your projects. But um, on the topic of the match itself, it's early, but I I always go straight to the next cycle. So, is there if is there anyone you would be particularly watching out for as the next potential challenger? Mm, wow, I mean. There's so many players I would like to see. Um, you know, obviously it would be great one day to have an American challenger. We've seen like a real rapid ascent from Alice Lee, haven't we? I'm yeah. not sure if like the next championship is 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 the destiny. Um, but I would uh, certainly like to see that in the future. Um, what about you? Is there anyone that kind of you're like jonesing to see a match? Yeah, I mean, someone like Aline Rober is also on a, in a similar vein. Obviously, she's a few years older than Alice Lee, but still seems like it might be early. So I would go. I would go back to Goryachkina, or of course, uh, being this the newly minted, you know, Lei Tingji fanboy. I I would love to see a rematch if uh, if opportunity if it breaks that way. I also really like. I mean, I feel like it's kind of with the amount that the Indian women have achieved in chess, it's kind of sad that they've never had a women's world champion. Right. I mean, yeah. you know, Harika is amazing. She's just such a great role model in chess. Like she's so awesome. Of course, Tanya, not quite on the same level. She's not a grandmaster, but she's just like such an international icon. I mean, honestly, like in, in my view, one of the great commentators in the sport. And then, of course, there's Humpy Canero, right? Yeah. Who is just is outstanding, you know, the the actually actually uh got the grandmaster title at a younger age than Judith Polgar, right? When she got yeah. I'm um, just an extraordinary player who who is kind of bummed that she was never women's world champion, by the way. And, you know, her timing was a little off because she kept 
fighting for it when Ho Yifan was playing for the titles. You know, so that that was a bit difficult. So th- I think that's the only reason she never prevailed for the crown. So I would actually like to see an Indian player fight for the World Women's Championship title in a head-to-head match because I think the they deserve it. And maybe it'll be one of the, the younger Indian players as well. But I would like to see, obviously, America, and I would like to see India as well. Yeah, that makes sense. And obviously, chess is thriving there. Um, uh, Mr. Daji and I discussed uh, I am Vashali. Pragananda's sister. She's certainly a rising star in her own right and someone that could potentially make some noise um, in, in coming years. So I happen to get a peek that your book may be coming in November. Is this rumor true? It is. Play like a champion. And I mean, according to the Amazon page, um, it's actually it's actually somehow going head to head with the release date of your book. So birthday <laughs> twins, birthday yeah. twins. Uh, Non-prime <laughs> members can save on shipping. <laughs> Oh, good point. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we'll see. Both, I mean, these things can be fluid. So yeah, both of us have November 1 re- release dates for now, but uh, those things can move around. Right now, mine is still on schedule. I'm not saying it's delayed or anything, but it's just, I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't count on it on either book necessarily being that exact day, but I'm certainly going to get my pre-order in and I'm excited for it. Yeah, me too. I'm really, I'm really psyched for it as well. Play like a champion. It's it's a book with uh, 700 chess puzzles. So it's a bit of an homage, actually, to um, another famous chess book by Edith Baird, who wrote a book uh, called 700 Problems. And um, much in the fashion of Play Like a Girl, it is games, it is puzzles from like uh, the top uh, female players. And uh, it's it's quite more difficult than Play Like a Girl. So that's like really one of the twists. And also the other difference is that I really wrote it with the eye to all genders. So, you know, being the mom of a six-year-old boy who loves chess, I now really see the importance of not just teaching girls about the great games of both women and men, but teaching everyone that because it's it's important to show to show boys, to show men that um, the games of women are really important too. Yeah, I'm excited for it. So what level would you say the material is like primarily um, geared toward? It's a pretty wide range. It's almost like playing Puzzle Rash. Like there will be some things in there that um, a a pretty new player can find, but there's also going to be some things that you're going to scratch your head over. I mean, I've got some, I've got compositions in there by, by Yosha. So like it's, it's not... It, there's that there's that kind of wide range that I think is really doable in a puzzle book format because you put it on your shelf when you're a thousand, maybe you can't read the last few chapters, but you'll be able to in a year or so. Right. And this is uh, FM Yosha Iglesias, who uh, sometimes posts her puzzles on on Twitter and they are they're no joke. <laughs> they're not easy. So um, so, yeah, that that tells you that it would be a wide range of puzzles indeed, but definitely something to look forward to. Um, and then you've got your YouTube channel now. Uh, what, what's the plan for that, Jen? Well, the reason for the YouTube channel is that, you know, my my little guy, um, Fabian, and I are, you know, studying a lot of chess together. And eventually we are going to co-author a book called How to Beat Your Mom at Chess. Um, so this YouTube channel is at your mom at chess and it's kind of documenting that journey as I go over some great games and some, you know, great tactical themes and I teach Fabi along the way. And of course, uh, I feel like a lot of new chess players out there that they really do want things to be kind of explained in a basic way. And I've always enjoyed that. I always think like my favorite thing about chess is that you can explain things at 
many levels at once, you know? And uh, so that's what the channel is about. And it's just so fun to do the project with my son. I have to say, I've worn so many hats in chess over the years, commentator, player, author, and being a chess mom is such a blast. So much fun. Yeah. Yeah. I was getting a little jealous. We were talking before we were recording. So Jen's uh, five, Jen's son, Fabian is six, as I've mentioned periodically, my kids are seven and 10 and they know how to play, but so far I, they're not really interested in tournaments, unfortunately. Well, you wouldn't be jealous when your son came home and said, mommy, I want you to teach me the London. (laughs) (laughs) No! (laughs) Right. That's funny. Um, And one last thing we should mention, Jen, it's always great to catch up. Uh, As we record this on Sunday, July 23rd, the unfortunate news broke that Isabella Choco, uh, it was reported today, I believe, that she passed away. Of course, she was featured in Ladies Night episode 33 and a follow-up with Uh, Chess.com. More importantly, she was a Holocaust survivor, uh, 1956 French women's champion, a French chess Olympiad, just a remarkable story, incredibly inspiring woman. And I was so sad to see that news. And uh, uh, Jen, what was your reaction? It was really just really sad. And, you know, 94 years old, shocking, um, because I just saw her in Paris, like, what was it, uh, five months ago? And she was just so full of life and, um, you know, so, so vibrant. I am so grateful that I took that opportunity to meet her. I'm really happy that, you know, Benji and Chandler, um, Chandler uh, directed the documentary and he became obsessed with the story. And Benji really brought the story to me from the, in the first place that they, you know, we all, we all realized, you know, we should, if we want to do this, we should do this soon, you know? And I think that that should be like a life lesson to people out there. Like, you know, our, our elders have so much to teach us um, and you don't want to wait, right? Because you just got to take these opportunities. And I'm just, especially when they involve travel, right? Yeah. Because, you know, you just, I'm not, I don't want to be like super morose about it. Like somebody might die, but the truth is that uh, you just, you got to get out there because I, I couldn't be more grateful to have the chance to have met her. In fact, I'll say like, I don't speak French and she speaks some English, of course, but, you know, um, we, we couldn't really fully communicate. And I know that she could realize how much I admired her and she wanted to be able to connect with me. So she did something she almost never does. She hasn't done this almost in any interview. She played chess with me. Oh, wow. Yeah, she hasn't played chess um, in recent years and certainly not in interviews. Um, She played maybe like 10, 15 years ago in some like French league games. Um, But in the last couple of years, she hasn't. And um, it was just this ability to communicate. You know, she was laughing. It was also like the first game, you could see she was a little rusty. But by the second game, like her level improved like 10x. Mm-hmm. So that was really cool to see as well. Like just like the fighter come come back within like a matter of minutes. And it just, I think it shows a lot about her character that like, even though this was supposed to be all about her, she saw that like, I just like was dying to connect with her. And she was like, okay, let's bring out the chess set. Let's play. That's great. Yeah, that that that's a wonderful story. And again, for for anyone who has not heard uh, Jen's interviews with with uh, Mishoko, you absolutely must listen to it. And and you say you're glad you did it. And the chess world as a whole should be glad that you and Benjamin Porto and everyone who who helped you um, contributed to this story because it's it just truly inspiring. 
It really is. I mean, you know, it just she, she speaks so eloquently about fighting against evil, fighting for freedom. And, and one of the really beautiful things that she says is she's not religious herself, but she believes in the beauty of family and specifically her parents. So even though um, her father died in the, in the ghetto and her mother died in, um, in the death camp, sadly, just a, a few weeks before she was rescued, um, when she was only 14 years old, um, she carried with, with that love with her her whole life. Like that was like something that gave her life so much meaning. And I mean, it's just, it's breathtaking to see like a woman in her 90s say that like her parents um, are still with her after she wasn't able to see them for so many years because of that evil. And it just goes to show you how important that lineage is and um, how, uh what you give to young people can stay with them into their old age. It's very beautiful. It's eternal. It's that love is eternal. And that's yeah. like kind of what I got out of her. Yeah. Well, rest in peace to uh, Isabella Choco. Uh, life as a life well lived, despite obviously uh, what she endured. Um, well, Jen, Always great to catch up. Um, anything to add uh, before we say goodbye? No, just a, a huge pleasure to be here as always. And yeah, thanks to everybody who's been so passionate about watching the Women's World Chess Championship. It's like, it's a, it's a dream come true to see so many more people rally around women's chess and the importance of it. And I know it's only going to get better in the next few years um, because the energy is there and because of the great players themselves. Yeah, well said. Yeah, absolutely thrilling match. And yeah, I can't wait for the next one. And thank you, Jen, for uh, for helping share your wisdom and your experience uh, discussing this high-level chest. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone. <laughs> Thanks. If you like what we're doing at U.S. Chess to encourage women and girls to explore STEM fields, accentuate confidence, and approach an even ratio with a focus on intersectionality, your donation to our U.S. Chess Women programs is always appreciated and tax deductible. The U.S. Chess Suite of Podcasts, including Ladies' Night, are produced and edited by Jason Andre at Seven Season Films Photography and Media. Please visit sevenseasonfilms.com to find out how to start your own podcast. Don't forget to listen and subscribe to all U.S. Chess Podcasts from One Move at a Time, Cover Stories, and The Chess Underground. Till next time, may every night be Ladies' Night. Now according to Sockfish I got it all wrong After slightly advantage I had nothing But my dear Capablanco You tell me We'll learn more from our defeats Who needs victory? Thank you.